The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. The title of my message for you this evening is Peter's Denial and Jesus' Trial. Peter's Denial and Jesus' Trial. We get to spend our time together tonight looking at and learning from this really curious figure in the Gospels named Peter. Now, Peter, of course, was the de facto leader of the 12 disciples. In all the lists of the disciples that you'll find in the, the, the New Testament, in the Gospels there, his name always appears first. He tends to be the spokesman for the group, and, and, and there's a lot of reasons to love Peter. But I think the thing that I love most about Peter It's just how relatable he is. He's endlessly fascinating, but he's wonderfully relatable. I I see a lot of myself in Peter. I think we probably all do. And tonight, we're going to get to see him at his lowest point. We get to see him at his worst. Now, let me tell you why that's good news. It's good news because when we're at our worst, that means God's at his best. God does his best work in us when we're at our lowest point. And so we're going to get to highlight the glory and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we pick up the story, we're here in John 18, and we find ourselves back in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has just been approached by a contingent of somewhere between two and 600 Roman soldiers. They're being led by Judas the traitor, Judas Iscariot, as well as a contingent of priests and and, uh, officials from, from the courts there in Jerusalem. They're all carrying lanterns, torches, and weapons. So you have to picture, this is a small army that's coming to arrest Jesus, and they're all being led by Judas. Now that's where we're going to pick up our story, beginning in verse 10 of John 18. It says, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, and he struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. Now, if nothing else, we have to at least admire Peter's bravery and boldness here, right? I mean, he's willing in this moment to single-handedly take on hundreds of armed soldiers in an effort to defend Jesus. Unfortunately for him, his bravery was far greater than his ability with a sword. So he, he pulls out this sword and he swings, but just at that moment, the guy ducks and he lops off his ear. And John tells us the guy's name. His name was Malchus. Maybe he knew him. Oh, that's Malchus. <laughs> I imagine him screaming and clutching the side of his head. Commotion ensues, and you hear the the, the clabber of, of all of these metal swords as they are being pulled from their scabbards. But before another blow could be thrown or a fight could break out, something unexpected happened. Now, John leaves this particular detail out of his recounting of the events of this night. But the other gospel authors fill us in. And and Luke, for example, tells us that just after Peter cuts the guy's ear off, Jesus does something. He reaches down to the ground. He picks up the man's ear and he sticks it back on the guy's head. Can we just stop and marvel at that for a moment? The healing, miraculous, supernatural power of Jesus. 
Now, this wasn't the first miracle that had happened. I mean, this happens on the heels of something else that had just happened there in the garden. Remember when those guys first showed up, Jesus says, who are you looking for? And he takes charge. I love that. And they're like, Jesus of Nazareth. And you remember what happened? He said, I am. And he lets that name go. And in that moment, they all hit the deck. Hundreds of soldiers find themselves face down in the presence of the Lord. Now, after that, and then you have the episode with the ear, and, and there's just confusion. You have, to, you have to wonder, what was going through these soldiers' heads in this moment? I mean, they're thinking, who is this guy again? Like, Jesus of Nazareth? I mean, these are battle-tested Roman soldiers. These guys have, have seen it all. They've done it all. They've been there. They bought the t-shirt. But I guarantee you, they've never seen anything quite like Jesus. Now, in verse 11, Jesus turns to Peter and he says, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Interesting contrast here. Peter stands there with a sword, a bloody sword in his hand. Meanwhile, Jesus references the cup that he's holding in his own hand. Now the cup, this cup, it's, it's not the first time we've read about it in John's gospel. He, he spoke of it there in John 13 when he cup, talked about the cup of, of redemption, the, the cup of the new covenant. This is the cup of suffering that he was about to drink on the cross. Earlier in that evening, as Jesus wrestled in his spirit with what he knew it was going to take in order to, to bring salvation to humanity. He prayed three times, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. What was he talking about? Now, now Jesus wasn't recoiling in that moment from the, the, the horrors of the physical suffering that he was about to endure on the cross. Though they were great, what drove him to the point of sweating drops of blood was this thought, the thought of being separated for the first time in all of the history of eternity from his father, whom he had known perfect, unbroken fellowship with. That's what caused him to cry out, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. He was saying, in essence, if there's any other way to bring about the salvation of mankind. Let's go with that route. Yet here we find him saying to Peter, shall I not drink of the cup the Father has given me? That tells us what the Father's answer is, that there's no other way. This is the cup that must be drunk, and it tells us that he had already settled in his heart. He was going to the cross, and you know something else? It tells us that the decisive battle for humanity had already been fought and won. It happened in that moment when Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And let me tell you something. Here's how that pertains to us. Because Jesus drank from that cup, the cup of suffering, because he drank the cup of God's wrath, it means you and I don't have to. Can someone say amen? amen. You see, on the cross, Jesus took the cup of the curse that you have incurred because of your own sin against God, and he drank that cup to its dregs in order that you might partake of communion, that you might share in his righteousness, that you might be robed in it. And so Jesus says, I'm going to drink of the cup. Then, verse 12, 
the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. And note this phrase, phrase, they bound him. And they brought him first to Annas, who's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. They arrested him anyway, even in the aftermath of everything that they just experienced. I mean, it blows my mind that they could arrest Jesus after what they'd just gone through. But it also does something else. It, it shows how hardened their hearts had become and how blinded their eyes were. There's a saying, there are none so blind as those who choose not to see. Think of the hatred that must have enveloped the religious leaders' hearts to still go with, through with Jesus' arrest after they had just witnessed firsthand his own miraculous power. And notice, too, how it says there in the middle of verse 12 that they bound him. Let that phrase settle on you. They took ropes and they wrapped them around his wrists. Keep in mind, these were the same hands that Jesus had used to only bring good and healing and help. To those who were in need, these were were the hands that had been used to to multiply bread and fish for the hungry. The hands that he had used to, to restore sight to the blind. Hands that he had used to reach out in love to the loveless, to to the outcasts, to the lepers, and to heal them. Hands that he had used to raise uh, Jairus' daughter, a little girl, a 12-year-old girl, from the dead. And hands, even in this moment, that he had just used to heal one of his captors. Yet they still bound him. It's as if the only way they could stop him from doing miracles was to tie his hands up. But of course, ultimately, we know it wasn't those ropes that bound Jesus. Somebody say amen right now. I mean, if Jesus could knock them over with nothing more than the sound of his voice, then a few ropes aren't going to be able to bind him, right? No, 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 no. He could have snapped those ropes like a twig. He wasn't bound by the ropes. He was bound by something far more powerful. He was bound by love. You see, Jesus knew that the only way to free us was to allow himself to be bound. And so it was his love for you and for me that that allowed him to endure the binding and the beating. Let's read this together out loud. This is Psalm 36, verse 7. It speaks of his love. Let's read it together. Your faithful love is priceless, God. Humanity finds refuge in the shadow of your wings. Oh, God's love is so many things. It is boundless. It is fathomless. It defies description. And yes, it is also priceless. Your faithful love is priceless. That's what bound Jesus there in the garden. Now, once bound, we read that they led him away to stand trial before Annas and Caiaphas. They were both high priests, and it was a, a befuddled thing where we're in Rome allowed um, kind of the highest bidder to serve as the priest. And so while Annas was, was in practical reality the high priest, it was his son-in-law Caiaphas who was serving as the high priest that year. Now, he would stand trial, Jesus would, before these guys, and this would be the first of six trials that Jesus would endure on his way to the cross. Of course, to call it a trial is generous, and I use that term in air quotes. There's nothing fair or legal 
about what unfolded here. It was a total miscarriage of justice as we're about to see. But now the camera pans away from Jesus and it zooms in once again on Simon Peter. Let's read about him in verse 15. Now, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back and spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. She said, you you aren't one of the man's disciples too, are you? He replied, I am not. Now it was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them warming himself. We have here the record of Peter's denial of the Lord. Now, Peter, he's probably the last guy that we would have pegged to deny Jesus. I mean, after all, he was the very first of the disciples to publicly identify Jesus as the Messiah. Remember the story? It happened in a place called Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus brought his disciples to this beautiful place It was known for pagan and and, and worship and idolatry and all the rest. And he asked them a, a question. He said, who do men say that I am? And they rattled off the answers. And then he personalized and he said, who do you say that I am? Peter didn't hesitate. He said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And I imagine a smile playing on the corners of Jesus' lips as he said, Peter, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven You can imagine Peter's chest puffing out a little bit in that moment. You hear that, guys? I have a special connection with God the Father. I have access to divine revelation. It is what it is. Get used to it. Well, it's not but just a couple of minutes later that Jesus begins to talk to his disciples about his impending death on the cross, and and Peter interrupts him, and he, he tries to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross, and this time, Jesus isn't commending Peter, but rather rebuking him. And he says, get behind me, Satan. That's Peter. He's up and he's down. He was brash and impetuous. And he demonstrated a tendency to put his foot in his mouth more than on one occasion. But he was also loyal and bold and deeply, deeply devoted and committed in his love for Jesus. There, there are a number of things. There are a lot of things we could say about Peter. But one thing you would never accuse Peter of being is a coward. I mean, he was ready to die for Jesus. He demonstrated that fact when he pulled out his sword there in the garden to defend Jesus. Yet here we find this most interesting story where he denies even knowing the Lord. Why? Because he's afraid of a little servant girl. Now, we're not told what her age is here, but if you go back to the original language, it suggests that she's a young girl. So picture someone between the ages of six and nine years old. That's who Peter denied knowing the Lord too. I mean, we're not talking about a soldier here, but a child. How did Peter Peter, how did Peter end up in this place? And then maybe we should personalize that question. Have you ever found yourself asking the same thing? Like, how did I end up here? Sometimes I'll meet with people in my office who've 
you know, just their life has gone off the rails and they've just made a mess of things. And, and they'll say that very thing to me. They'll say, Pastor, I don't know. How did I get here? And in each instance, as we begin to untangle the web and we retrace their steps, inevitably, invariably, what we always find is that there were always a series of small compromises along that way that resulted in the great big disaster. You see, small compromises that that are left undealt with always result in great big disasters. You see, nobody ruins their marriage or develops a horrible secret life of addiction in an instant. There's there's a path that we get on that takes us away from the Lord. And and that's exactly what we see with Peter. So if we're going to ask the question, how did Peter end up here? We have to rewind the tape a little bit because there are some things that played out earlier in the story that give us an insight into how he got here. And what we see is that the main thing that led to Peter's downfall was his pride. Pride. So it was earlier in the night at the the table where Jesus shared the Last Supper with his disciples. He told the guys, he said, this very night, all of you are going to fall on account of me. You're going to fall away. In other words, he was telling them, uh, uh, giving them a preview of, of this scene that we've just read about where they would all abandon the Lord. Now, in response to that, Peter said, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Come on, Jesus. I'm Pete. I'm your rock. Remember? I got you. And I wonder if when he said, even if everyone else does, I wonder if he didn't just kind of point at the other disciples. Now, John and Simon and Bartholomew, these guys might bail on you, Lord. I'm going to be honest with you, but not me. I'm your guy. He was full of spiritual pride. He thought, there's no way I could fall. Now, let's read this together. This is Proverbs 16, 18. the wisdom of Solomon, he writes these words. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Interesting. Pride always goes before destruction. That haughty spirit, it goes before a fall. The Bible says, take heed when you think you stand, because that's when you're in the most danger of falling. You know, we live in a, a, a day, an age where, where we read headlines regularly. Uh, oftentimes you'll see stories of prominent pastors or men and women in positions of influence within the church. And I wonder if you've ever seen one of those headlines about one of these prominent leaders after they've fallen into a grievous sin and thought, I mean, how could they? Look at them, the position they held. I mean, I would never. And, and let me just warn you. Be careful with that phrase. That's exactly what Peter said on this night. See, at the end of the day, we all share a sin nature. Like the moon, we all have a dark side. We all have shadows in our life. And because we carry that sin nature with us, we have to crucify it daily. But because it still resides in residue form in our heart, then we can't pull away from it. It means that we're all capable of horrific things. So our attitude should always be there, but for the grace of God, go I. See, it's that era of pride that gets us in trouble. It's interesting to contrast Peter with John. 
Throughout John's gospel, we've been studying the gospel of John, and it's interesting because John never refers to himself by name. You know that by now. What does he call himself? He simply refers to himself as the disciple that, that Jesus loved. Good, good job, students. You guys are good Bible students. John just says, I'm the one, I don't want to confuse anybody. I'll just make it really clear. I'm the one he loved. And that's how he refers to himself throughout the gospel. Now, it feels like, you know, a flex. It feels like a, a humble brag. But in, but in reality, if, if you tease it out, what I think John's saying there is the, the, the defining characteristic of my relationship with the Lord is not my love for him, but it's, it's his love for me that defines me. Isn't that cool? Now contrast that with Peter, who in the scene I just told you about was boasting of his loyalty, his love for the Lord. I'll never betray you. On the whole, I found that the problem with focusing on my love is that it's fickle and frail. My love runs dry. His doesn't. My love is imperfect. His isn't. That's why, as a rule, I've discovered that it's always better to boast about God's perfect love for me, his faithful love for me, than it is to boast about my love for him. So Peter's pride got in the way, and, and that paved the way for several other sins. His, pot, his pride paved the way for his next sin, which was prayerlessness. This happened in the garden, too. While Jesus was battling in prayer there in the garden, he turned to, to Peter and to James and to John, and he asked them, will you pray with me? My soul is heavy, even to the point of death. And they're like, we got you. We're going to pray with you. But then a couple of minutes later, they were sawing logs. They were snoring. They were snoozing. He asked them three separate times to pray with him. But each time, they fell asleep. Now, do you think it's coincidental that Jesus asks them three times, pray with me so that you won't fall into temptation? And three times Peter goes on to deny the Lord. I don't think so. You see, his prayerlessness made him unprepared for what was about to happen. But we don't think of prayerlessness like that. I don't even know if that's a word, but we're going to run with it. Prayerlessness. When's the last time you heard someone confess, you know, I've just got to confess sin. I don't even know how else to say it. I've just... I've been suffering from the sin of prayerlessness. It's just not something you hear. We don't think of it as sin, and yet it is. And what we see here is Peter's prayerlessness directly stems from his pride. Pride says, I can do it on my own. And when you're confident in your own flesh, you don't think you need the Lord, so why would you pray? But because Peter was sleeping when he should have been praying, he wasn't ready when the moment or the hour of testing came. You can picture him just waking up out of a dead sleep, and there he sees torches and lanterns and soldiers. He doesn't know what else to do. And in his confusion, he grabs his knife, and he, he reaches for the person who's closest, and he ends up lopping off the guy's ear. Listen, Peter was in the flesh, not the spirit. And you can't win a spiritual battle by using fleshly means. The best you'll ever be able to offer the Lord is a few bloody ears. But I don't know that that's what Jesus wants. See, Peter's pride led to his prayerlessness, which caused him to be unprepared when the moment of testing came. And then this caused the next thing to happen, which is Peter allowed distance to develop between him and the Lord. And we see this in verse 18. Notice how just before the camera pans away from Peter, it finds him one more time. And where is he? He's standing by the fire with some of the servants and officials. 
because he was cold. Now, if you look at the word officials there, it shows up earlier in our text, I think in verse two or three, when it's talking about who was there in the garden to arrest Jesus. The people that Peter is standing around the fire with, in all likelihood, are the same people who just hours before had arrested Jesus. Now, what business does Peter have warming himself at the enemy's fire? What good can come from that? Of course, the answer is nothing. But his hands were cold. Listen, whenever you allow distance to develop between you and the Lord, it's only a matter of time before your heart starts to grow cold. Ooh, I wonder, is there anyone in here tonight, your heart is a little distant, and you know it's distant because the passion is gone, the fire is gone. You don't, you don't feel the fire of his presence, and, and, and so you're cold, and, and what happened with Peter is he, he was cold, and so he warmed himself at the enemy's fire, and, and when your heart's cold, it won't be long before you too find yourself standing at the fire of the enemy to get warm, and when you're in the wrong place, hanging out with the wrong people, it's only a matter of time before you're doing the wrong thing, and that's exactly what happened to Peter. He was filled with pride. He failed to pray. He was unprepared, and then he found himself distant from the Lord, and he denied Jesus. Now, we, we shift in focus. The camera pans away from Peter, and it re-zooms in on Jesus. And, and John's tr- doing something with this. So let's read about it in verse 19. It says, now, meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus said, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. So why are you questioning me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. Now, when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So we have Peter's denial juxtaposed against Jesus' faithful witness. Now, notice there's so much injustice going on here. Ancient jurisprudence or or Jewish law operated under the same assumption of presumed innocence until guilt had been proven, just like America does today. Yet here we find Jesus essentially being interrogated and ultimately sentenced before his crimes have ever even been established. I mean, the whole basis of his arrest was was an illegal bribe that was paid by the religious leaders to Judas. The fact that his trial takes place at night was another illegality. Jewish law also stated that a person couldn't be tried, convicted, and condemned in a single day. That's what happened with Jesus. The whole thing is a mockery of justice, yet Jesus is faithful till the very end. And I think John is really trying to draw out out this comparison between Jesus and Judas. It seems intentional. On the one hand, we see Jesus facing real danger and real consequences. And yet he's faithful. He's, He's steadfast. He's righteous. Meanwhile, Peter faces nothing more than the inquiry of a servant girl. And he crumbles under the pressure. And it's a beautiful contrast. It's a picture of our Lord's faithfulness in light of our fallenness. This is what we all need because we're all Peter. 
We all fail. And Paul said it like this. He said, even when we're faithless, he remains faithful because he can't deny himself. Peter was just doing his best. But as it turns out, Peter's best was far from enough. His best was still ugly, pathetic, and shameful. But thank God we have an advocate who stands trial in our place. And in every point where we fail, Jesus is righteous for us. His integrity remains intact. Now, as we return back to Peter, we're going to close with this tonight. Meanwhile, verse 25. So now we've shifted from Peter to Jesus. Now back to Peter. Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. And so they asked him, you're not one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. And one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, no, 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 didn't I see you with him in the garden? And again, Peter denied it. And then notice, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. We see here Peter denying the Lord again, and and John describes these things, these denials in rapid succession. And and it's worth pointing out that each denial grows in its intensity. The first time, Peter just denies the Lord, knowing him. Secondly, he does so more emphatically. However, by the third time, Matthew tells us that Peter called down curses upon himself, and he's just He's just saying, may I be forever cursed by God. May I be anathema if I know the man. I don't know him. And no sooner had that third denial left his lips than the rooster began to crow. And it's in that instant when it's just like, it all comes together. And Peter remembers the promise, the prophecy that Jesus had spoken over him. By the time the rooster crows, you will have denied knowing me three times, Peter. Now Luke adds this detail. He tells us in that moment when the rooster crowed that Peter could look across the courtyard and he saw Jesus and Jesus saw Peter. I wonder, I wonder what, what did Peter see in Jesus' eyes in that moment? I mean, did he see a look of, of disappointment? Did he see a look of anger? Did Jesus kind of roll his eyes? Did he look at him with a, with, with a kind of look that communicated, I told you so, Peter? No. You know what Peter saw in those eyes? He saw unfailing love. He saw compassion. And oh, this is the part of the sermon that I need everyone's attention. Because I know, I know there are people in this room, and you too, like Peter, you failed the Lord miserably. And everything about tonight is for this moment where Jesus is inviting you through this text to lock eyes with him. I'm here to to tell you that when you look at Jesus, you're going to see love. And your eyes are downcast, and your back is bent, and your, your life is filled with guilt and shame over the, the things that you've done and the ways that you failed. And the Lord is saying, look at me. And he, he wants to take your chin, and gently he wants to lift it until your eyes meet his, because he wants you to see that he loves you, and he's moving towards you in love. You see, there's this thing that's going on here that we have to tease out. That Jesus connects Peter's failure with the crow of the rooster. And it almost feels cruel in a way that he would point to the rooster. Why? Well, because roosters crow every single day. 
Which means Peter had a reminder every single day. It was like an alarm clock that would wake him up and would remind him, remember how you fail. You have to bet that Peter hated roosters. Every time he saw a rooster, he was chucking a rock at it. He hated roosters. Because the crow of the rooster was like the, it was like the sermon of the enemy that reminded him of all the points at which he'd failed. Not once, not twice, but three times. But, but Jesus isn't mean like that, is he? I mean, he wouldn't do something in that way to kind of hold it over Peter's head, to constantly like rub it in his face. Yeah, I'll bring you back, but I just need you to know, you failed me, Peter, and I just, I want you to wallow in that misery and that shame. The roots are just there to remind you day after day. No, no, no. I don't think that's what Jesus was doing. I think the reason Jesus connected Peter's sin with the crowing of a rooster is because roosters welcome the dawn of every new day. And Jesus wanted Peter to know that with each new day, there are new mercies that are there to greet you morning after morning. Let's read together out loud Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. You've got to read this one with me. We've got to declare it. This is the Lord preaching He's declaring this over us. So let's read it, but let's read it at a gut level. Let's read it with our hearts. Okay, let's try it again. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. That verse ought to get you fired up, church. His love never fails. And every time the enemy comes in the form of a rooster to remind you of your failure, you remind him that there is new grace to meet the day's needs. There is new mercies every single morning. That's good news for us. And here's what I want to leave you with tonight. The story isn't over. You need to know this about Peter, because we're about to move on from Peter, and we're going to go back to Jesus and his dealings with Pilate, but you need to know that Peter's story doesn't end here. Now, it easily could have, right? But we know that it doesn't. Why? Because Jesus still had plans for Peter. In fact, John dedicates a whole chapter, the last chapter of his gospel. We'll get there eventually. John chapter 21. And John dedicates that whole chapter to describing how Jesus lovingly restored Peter at a fire. And three times Jesus will ask Peter, do you love me? (sighs) Over a fire. Three times Peter denied the Lord at the fire. Three times the Lord gives him an opportunity to profess his love. And each time Peter says, you know all things. You know that I love you. 
And each time the Lord uses that opportunity to, opportunity to recommission Peter, and that blesses me. It ought to bless you because it lets us know if God could use a failure like Peter, then there's hope for people like you and me. Because at the end of the day, we're all Peter, aren't we? We've all failed the Lord. We've all denied the Lord, whether it's with our lips or it's by our actions. But you need to know something that's not what defines you. You are not defined by your greatest mistake. You are not defined by your worst decision. You're not defined by how many times you get knocked down. What will ultimately define you in life is how you choose to respond to failure. So as an illustration, there's, there's this running back. His name is Emmett Smith. He has rushed for the most yards in NFL history. He's the NFL's all-time leading rusher. And over the course of his very long career, he ran for a, a number of yards that equates to a little more than 10 miles. Now, his average yards per carry were 4.2, which means he got tackled 4,370 times in his Hall of Fame career. Every time he got tackled, 4.2 yards, some 300-pound, big as a mountain, sweaty Goliath of a man was falling on him. Imagine you went out for a run. We want to be healthy, and you know, it's good for your cardiovascular health, and you think, I'm going to go for a run this morning, and so you, you put on your, your shorts and your running shoes, and you set out, but you take four steps, and out of nowhere, you get blindsided by an LF, NFL lineman. You think, that was really odd. So you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off, and you run four more steps, and boom, you get knocked over again, <laughs> over and over and over again. That's what happened to, uh, to uh, Emmett Smith. <laughs> Imagine how many times would you do that before you say, oh, forget it, I'm, I'm done with this run. I don't need to run that bad. Every time Emmett Smith got knocked down, he had to ask himself, am I going to get up again? And maybe this is the Lord speaking to you tonight, and you've been knocked down, because life is a lot like that. <laughs> On average, I would say that life knocks us down about every 4.2 yards. Can somebody say amen to that? And it hits us, and it hits us hard. And the question perhaps for you tonight is, are you going to get back up again? There's an interesting, another contrast. Earlier I was talking about you know, John and Peter, but what if we were to contrast Peter and Judas? Because at the end of the day, these guys had a lot in common. They were both disciples. Both men spent three years with Jesus. Both failed the Lord miserably. And then after their betrayal, both men out, went out and wept bitterly and felt remorse. Yet for all the similarities they share, their stories of very different outcomes. After his failure, we know that Peter was restored. Meanwhile, Judas went out, and the Bible says he hung himself, and he was lost forever. So what's the difference, we wonder, between Judas and Peter? And it really comes down to this one thing. While Judas expressed regret over what he had done, only Peter truly repented. Regret will eat away at you. And regret's a dangerous thing because it doesn't help you change or it doesn't lead to anything positive. It just it, it causes you to sit there wishing things had played out differently. It means you wish it hadn't, 
you know, gone this way, but it doesn't mean you're sorry or that you're willing to change. That's why regret is one of the favorite terms of, of politicians, right? It's, it's part of their meaningless apologies, and they just say, oh, you know, I, I regret what happened, or I regret that people got hurt, which isn't, by the way, the same thing as saying, I'm sorry, or it's my fault, or forgive me. It's just, no, 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 I regret this. And while Judas expressed regret, only Peter was repentance. Now, repentant. Now, what, what is repentance? Repentance, listen, speaks of a changed mind. A changed mind it means you agree with God, you change your mind, and it's a changed mind that leads to a changed life. It's God focused. And it says, Lord, you know I can't. It is humble dependence on the Lord. And Peter repented, and that's what paved the way and opened the door for God to use him in wonderful ways. You know, it's Peter who on the day of Pentecost preached the gospel. Of all the disciples that Jesus could have chose to, to kind of usher in the new movement of Christianity and to, to spark or ignite the flame that would ultimately span the globe, he chose Peter, Peter the failure. In Acts chapter 3, after Peter had healed this man at the, the, the gate on his way into the temple, he found himself preaching to a large crowd, and at the end of his very passionate, moving sermon about Jesus and the cross, the crowd said, what should we do? What do we do with this? And by the way, I think that should be the question that, that that lingers in the air every time a good sermon is preached. It should lead to doing. It's not just more information for you to file away in your brain. No, no, no. The Word of God ought to inspire action. And so Peter preaches this sermon about Jesus, and their response is, what should we do? And here was Peter's response. He said, repent and be baptized so that times of refreshing can come from the presence of the Lord. And who knew better than him the power of repentance and the beauty of those times of refreshing? He had experienced it. He had been washed. He had been cleansed. He had been transformed by the grace of God. He experienced wave after wave of God's mercy with each new morning as the rooster crowed. He was reminded of those, the need for fresh mercy, fresh repentance, and fresh grace. And so it was just became the pattern of his life. Repentance isn't something to be shied away from. Repentance isn't a dirty word. Repentance is beautiful. All of life ought to be one of repentance. We should be quick to repent because repentance is the quickest way back into his grace. It's what welcomes us back into the fold so that Jesus can then use us for his glory. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.